This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Douglas Simpuga, and here's what's coming up. If you can't get Israel to even abide by a ceasefire, and worse yet, if you can't get the U.S. to even endorse a humanitarian ceasefire, how on earth are you going to focus on larger and bigger agendas? That's Khalid Jahashan, Executive Director of the Arab Center in Washington, on the challenges of advancing the prospects for peace between Israel and Hamas. Also, the DRC's Constitutional Court has confirmed President Felix Shishikedi's landslide victory. And Botswana and Beers have approved a $1 billion investment in to expand a major diamond mine. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The UN's International Court of Justice will hold hearings this week to decide whether an interim measure needs to be brought against Israel to try and halt the war in Gaza. Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg explains the history behind the South African government's long-standing solidarity with the Palestinian people. South Africa has gone to the ICJ, or International Court of Justice in The Hague, charging that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. On Thursday and Friday, the court will hear arguments from both sides and will then decide whether to issue an interim order that Israel stop its bombardment of Gaza. Clayson Moniela, spokesman for South Africa's Department of International Relations and Cooperation, explains why South Africa has taken this route. There are ongoing reports of crimes against humanity and war crimes being committed, as well as reports that acts meeting the threshold of genocide or related crimes as defined in the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide have been and may still be committed in the context of the ongoing massacres in Gaza. South Africa and Israel are both signatories to the convention. Legal experts say the full case to prove Israel is guilty of genocide could take years, but the hearings this week are an urgent measure to seek a quick order against Israel in the meantime. If South Africa wins at what is often dubbed the World Court, it will be an international embarrassment for Israel, lawyers told VOA this week. However, while decisions by the court are binding, they are not always followed. Russia, for example, has still not obeyed a 2022 ICJ order that had halt its invasion of Ukraine. Mia Swart, a visiting international law professor at South Africa's University of the Witwatersrand, explains. Enforcement is typically the Achilles heel of international justice at the ICJ. It's probably highly likely that Israel will not, you know, immediately desist from all military action should the court order this, and that this will then have to go to the Security Council. As a permanent member of the top UN body, the U.S. has veto powers and is a firm ally of Israel. Washington, like the Israeli government, has called the South African lawsuit meritless. South Africa's support for the Palestinian cause is long-standing, says Gerhard Kemp, a South African law professor at the University of the West of England, Bristol. There's also an historic reason for this. The African National Congress, the governing party of South Africa, has a very long-standing relationship with the people of God, uh, Palestine, with the Palestinian liberation movements. So therefore, there's also historical significance in that South Africa is taking the lead on this by bringing Israel to the ICJ. The African National Congress, or ANC, 
was itself once a banned liberation movement that led an armed struggle against the racist white apartheid regime in South Africa and says it sees echoes of that in the plight of the Palestinians. Former South African President Nelson Mandela was a close friend of former Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and famously said South Africa's freedom would not be complete until the Palestinians were also free. Kate Bartlett, VOA News, Johannesburg. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is urging Israel to work with moderate Palestinians and neighboring countries on plans for post-war Gaza, saying they were willing to help rebuild and govern the territory, but only if there is a pathway to a Palestinian state. Speaking at a news conference yesterday after meeting with top Israeli leaders, Blinken said Israel must stop taking steps that undercut the Palestinians' ability to govern themselves effectively. The U.S. and Israel are united in the war against Hamas, but sharply divided over Gaza's future. Washington and its Arab allies hope to revive the long-stalled peace process, an idea that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition partners sharply oppose. Khalil Jahassan, executive director of the Arab Center in Washington, discussed Blinken's future shuttle diplomacy with VOA's senior analyst Mohammed Al-Shanawi. The Secretary of State is in the region. It's an attempt by the administration to try to resuscitate, uh, I would say, its Middle East uh, diplomatic campaign, trying to focus on the day after in Gaza. Plus, this is being done amidst uh, very serious concern on the part of the administration that uh, somehow things are getting out of control as far as this White House uh, is concerned. So it's not accidental that not only the Secretary, but when you look at it, uh, also his Assistant Secretary Leaf is in the region. Region. The counselor of the State Department, Cholette, is in the region. Assistant Secretary Jeffrey uh, Payat is in the region. The Special Energy Security Coordinator, Amos Hochstein, is in the region. I think they feel that, really, the threat they have been afraid of from day one, from October 7th, that this conflict is expanding way beyond the borders of Gaza, seems to be uh, taking hold and seems to be becoming a reality. And this is the reason for this mission and the reason for the purpose of this mission. Would Secretary Blinken be able to convince the Israeli leaders to lower the intensity of their military campaign in Gaza and allow more trucks with needed humanitarian aid? Frankly, I I wish he would, but I have my doubts because uh, this is not new. The U.S. government has been asking for this from day one, and it has failed. It's been like dripping strategy on the part of the Israelis. At one point, they bragged about allowing 100 trucks to enter Gaza, but what are we talking about Gaza under normal circumstances needs about 400 trucks of supplies through the Egyptian border per day. And so even if we indeed allow 200, not just 100, it's a drop in the bucket. It's not sufficient. Second, the fact that they have cornered the civilian population of Gaza in the southern part of the Strip and left them essentially with very basic humanitarian needs met has accelerated, has more than doubled or even quadrupled in some respects their humanitarian needs. So to talk about allowing few trucks here and few trucks there, I, I understand. 
the bureaucracy always tries to justify its existence and, and the Secretary of State keep talking about the great work Ambassador Satterfield is doing. Uh, you know, I have no doubt that they are working hard, but the results are minimal and definitely are not meeting the basic needs on the part of the Palestinian population of Gaza. Blinken also hopes to make progress in talks on Gaza's governance and potential security if and when Israel achieves its aim of eradicating Hamas, who is perceived by the U.S. to run Gaza and the West Bank after the war. There's a lot of talk about this. However, frankly, no one knows the answer uh, to that. It's it's, uh, daydreaming, mostly. Uh, I've never seen diplomacy in the form of daydreaming before. They keep talking about moving forward in a positive direction in terms of returning uh, to some kind of diplomacy, looking for the uh, peaceful solution to the Palestine problem. But if you can't get Israel to even abide by a ceasefire, and worse yet, if you can't get the U.S. to even endorse a humanitarian ceasefire, how on earth are you going to focus on larger and bigger agendas? So I really uh, think it's uh, essentially an attempt to kind of detract attention from the fact that the campaign by Israel essentially failed thus far. It has killed a lot of people. When you look at 22,800 dead, about uh, 70% of them civilians, uh, you're talking about several thousand children, you're talking about 57,000 injuries, you're talking about 7,000 missing, you're talking about more than 70% of the structures, the buildings, apartment in the Gaza Strip destroyed. A lot of destruction. If that's achievement, uh, I'm, I'm not sure Israel is going to enjoy peace in the future. But in terms of the main objective, i.e. eliminating uh, the military power of Hamas and somehow impose a new form of government on the Palestinians, I don't think the administration is convinced that Israel has achieved its purposes, even though they have given it ample time claiming that Israel deserves uh, the right to finish uh, the job and achieve its main objectives. That was Khalil Jahshan, Executive Director of the Arab Center in Washington, speaking with VOS analyst Mohamed El Shanawi. Diara Congo's Constitutional Court has confirmed President Felix Shishikedi's landslide election victory last month for a second term. Election officials say Shishikedi got 73.47% of the vote, defeating 20 opposition candidates. The Democratic Republic of Congo held presidential, legislative, regional and local elections on December 20th. Nine opposition candidates then signed a declaration rejecting what they termed a sham election and calling for a rerun. The coming year would be a major test of democratic rule as an estimated 4 billion people in more than 50 nations, almost half the world's population, are set to vote in elections. As Henry Ridgewell reports, the outcomes will will likely shape global politics for many years to come. Sheikh Hasina won a fifth term as Prime Minister of Bangladesh Saturday, the first in a series of major elections across the world this year. Taiwan will hold its presidential election on January 13th. China's threat to retake the island by force looms over the vote. William Lai, the candidate for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, who is ahead in the polls, said this month that Taiwanese are not only choosing Taiwan's future leaders to decide on the country's future, but also deciding on the peace and stability of the Indo-Pacific region.
Indonesia is set to choose a new president next month to rule the nation of 277 million people, making it one of the world's biggest votes held on a single day. Pakistan will hold parliamentary elections in February, where opposition leader and former Prime Minister Imran Khan remains jailed on charges of leaking state secrets, which he denies. Russians will vote in presidential elections in March, and incumbent Vladimir Putin is all but certain to win. Ian Bond is from the Centre for European Reform. He has control of all of the administrative machinery. Required to make sure that、um, a, a crushing vote in favour of him is delivered, and you know we get another six years of, of Putin、um, up to at least 2030. India, the world's biggest democracy, will hold parliamentary elections between April and May, with the Bharatiya Janata or BJP party under Prime Minister Narendra Modi ahead in the polls. Pushp Saraf is an Indian political journalist. These are very significant elections because、uh, there are clearly two opinions in the country at the moment. One is that BJP is polarizing society on、uh, communal lines, and、uh, on the other end, there is、uh, opinion that BJP is focusing more on national security. On June second, Mexico is due to hold presidential elections, which could herald a new milestone. También es un evento histórico por la posibilidad. Pollster Patricio Morelos said the election is also a historic event because of the possibility that, for the first time, a woman will govern Mexico. The European Union is set to hold parliamentary elections in June, representing more than half a billion people, amid a resurgence in support for right-wing populist parties. Britain is scheduled to hold elections before the end of the year, with polls suggesting opposition Labour Party leader Keir Starmer is on course to end a tumultuous 14 years of Conservative rule. On November 5th, Americans will decide whether to give Democrat Joe Biden a second term as U.S. president, or choose a Republican alternative, with Donald Trump seemingly his most likely opponent. Either result will have global ramifications. Anand Menon is professor of international politics at King's College London. In the European context, there are all sorts of fears that, you know, Donald Trump could very, very quickly undermine NATO. In the coming year, voters are set to wield their democratic power on an unprecedented scale, and the consequences will likely be felt for decades to come. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. Lawyers for former U.S. President Donald Trump and the Justice Department spared in the Washington courtroom yesterday over whether he is immune from prosecution on charges that he illegally tried to append his 2020 re-election loss, even as he tries to reclaim the White House in November. The three U.S. appellate court judges hearing the case issued no immediate ruling. Speaking to reporters after the hearing, Trump warned that there will be Uh, Bedlam in the country if he's prosecuted. A Justice Department lawyer on the team that is prosecuting Trump told the appellate court panel the president is not above the law. A former president enjoys no immunity. Trump holds a commanding lead for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, even as he faces an unprecedented 91 charges across four criminal indictments. 
Trump's election fraud case in Washington is set to start on March 4th. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Botswana and global diamond giant De Beers have approved a $1 billion investment to dig to dig under the world's richest diamond mine. The Botswana Diamond Company's board said it has given the go-ahead to works that are to extend the life of the Juaneng mine, turning it from an open pit site to an underground operation. The French news agency, AFP, says the mine accounts for about 70% of profits from the Botswana. It's a 50-50 joint venture between the government and the beers, which auctions most of the gemstones. The firm says the move, which comes amid a global drop in demand for the precious gems, will extend its lifespan by 20 years and yield up to 9 million carats per year. One California valley grows a large percentage of the vegetables in the U.S., but it depends entirely on the shrinking Colorado River for water. Matt Dibo has this third story in our five-part series, Rivers at Risk. This canal sends water to California's Imperial Valley. It's where the largest share of Colorado River water gets used for growing crops in an area that otherwise would be a desert. Water rights for the valley are held by the Imperial Irrigation District, which has allocated about 3 million acre-feet of water per year, more than the states of Arizona and Nevada combined. It has senior water rights according to the 100-year-old Colorado Compact Agreement, making it the last user required to take cuts in the event of a shortage. Tina Shields is a water manager for the Imperial Irrigation District. We're big in the winter vegetables. Um, If you're eating lettuce in December, it's probably coming from here or the Yuma Valleys. The Irrigation District supplies water to over 200,000 hectares which in 2022 produced $2.6 billion worth of crops and livestock. It's a system that has worked for decades, when reservoirs were full. Now we're at some of these critical elevations, which we would love to ignore and just say, we have senior water rights, Um, but it turns out it's our only water supply. With the Colorado River system threatened, the district agreed in May 2023 to reduce the water it provides farmers by about 25% for the next three years, in return for federal funds. Stephen Hawk is a fourth-generation farmer in the valley. There are going to have to be cuts, and it will affect how we farm here. You know, I try to be as judicious as I can with the water that I'm given. I know it's, it's a very important resource. I don't want to waste a drop. For over a decade, the agency has been helping farmers fund the expense of transitioning to more water-efficient irrigation systems, like sprinklers and drip. The program is paid for with water sales to cities. Sprinklers are helping conserve water, but critics say water is being wasted on crops that humans don't eat. More than half of the fields here grow alfalfa and other grasses used to feed livestock. They are lucrative crops grown year-round in the valley, but they also consume the most water. While it could be a little bit controversial, it also has given us sustainability. 
our margins on a lot of the crops that we grow are so razor thin, it's very easy. I know a lot of people that have gone uh, under. Hawk now grows more vegetables and less alfalfa than he used to. But he doubts that he could find buyers if he replaced all his alfalfa fields with produce. We only grow what the demand is for. So if people want to eat hamburgers and have milkshakes, uh, then we've got to produce enough alfalfa and forage to feed the, the cows. The most drastic adaptation would be taking fields out of production completely. That is not supported by the irrigation district management. It's not good for our community. It causes additional unemployment and third-party impacts on all those farm-related businesses. Instead, Shields says they are considering cutting off water to crops such as alfalfa for a few months of the year. As this farming community waits to see how it will be affected by falling water levels, Hawk hopes his farm will survive to pass on to the next generation. Matt Dibble, VOA News, Holtzville, California. A U.S.-based nonprofit is working with the government of Rwanda to provide free surgical care to women who are suffering from the obstetric uh, fistula, restoring not only their health, but also their dignity. VOA's Julie Tabo has more. It's a joyous occasion for these Rwandan women on this rainy day in the capital, Kigali. They are welcoming a U.S. team here to help women suffering from obstetric fistula and other gynecological issues. One of those women is Julianne Nirandinabo, who became incontinent after her bladder was damaged during childbirth. Fistula caused me depression. I couldn't earn money or perform physical tasks. I even struggled to care for my child, depending on my husband for our needs. An obstetric fistula is a hole that can form between the mother's birth canal and her bladder or rectum during prolonged or obstructed labor or a badly performed cesarean section. This devastating injury can cause a woman to continuously leak urine, feces, or both. It can cause her great pain and emit a strong odor that often leads to feelings of shame and social isolation. Nirandi Nabo's fistula was repaired by an all-volunteer surgical team assembled by the U.S. nonprofit International Organization for Women and Development. But not all fistula victims are so lucky. More than 2 million women live with untreated obstetric fistula in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, according to the World Health Organization. Barbara Margolis is founder and executive director of the organization. When you have fistula, trust me, it is one of the worst situations a woman could possibly have. She's treated like she has leprosy. No one wants to be near her. She smells all the time. Her children don't want to be near her. Her husband sometimes can even leave. So we're here to fix that. The team visits Rwanda three times a year and works closely with the government, which has been providing assistance and medical students for training since 2010. Medical student Christy Marie Bibian Ruamo has been part of the fistula repair program since 2022. Fistula patients uh, come in a vulnerable state. After their surgeries, they are smiling, grateful, and they are excited to, to go home. How are you? Fine, fine. Improving women's health impacts not only them, but also their families and communities. We know that women are the basis for a strong family structure. And if a woman is healthy and happy and has her dignity back, we know that family will be successful. 
The team's holistic approach contributes to that success. Dr. Richard Nian Gabo has been working with the U.S. group for six years. We don't treat the diseases; we treat the people. So after 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 the treatment, some of them were able. Uh, they were able to help them to start some small small businesses. Some of them, younger ones, were given tuition fees to go back to school. There's also a strong focus on education and hands-on training. We want this to be a sustainable project, so that when we finally go home, the Rwandans can take care of their own. Julianne Nirandinabo would agree. I encourage women not to hide their condition and to seek medical help. Fistula is a treatable condition, and there is hope for recovery. Together with their partners in Rwanda. International Organization for Women and Development has examined more than 4,500 women and children, and performed about 1,400 fistula and prolapse surgeries. Life-changing treatment that is not only repairing bodies but restoring dignity. <laughs> Julie Tabo, VOA News. And that wraps up this edition of African News tonight. I'm Douglas in Togo, Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent, 24/7, visit our website at viewafrica.com. On behalf of our producer David Vande and our engineer Nashwan Kali, I thank you for choosing the Voice of America.